when I was a student at uh, the University of Glasgow in Scotland and then later a uh, student at the Theolog- Baptist Theological College, there was a man there who was my um, philosophy tutor and my Greek tutor who invested a great deal of his um, training and time and himself um, into me. And I realized that much later, that um, anything that I, any ability that I have to open God's word or to share with the congregation, and my heart as a pastor really had been nurtured by this man. I didn't realize that at the time, but later on, um, when we were in a, a church in Victoria, which became a large church, um, I realized really how much I was indebted to all that he poured into me and invested in me. So one day I wrote to him, um, January, February, and Victoria, and I told him about our family and about our church. But I said, um, my, my real reason for writing to you is to tell you, uh, in a word of thank you and affirmation, um, my thanks to you for how much you invested in me. I wonder if you've ever done that to somebody. You go back to your mind and you think, that was a person that really poured themselves into me. So I wrote back and I just wanted to thank him for all of the time and the effort and whatever he poured into me. Because I said, anything I really had to do now as a pastor and stand in front of a large congregation and open your word is because of what you gave to me. And I want to thank God for you. And so on. That was it. A couple of weeks later, I got a letter back from Glasgow. I said, Dear Cullen, I'm not sure if you ever knew my first name, but um, kind of typical fish lecturers. Dear Cullen, your letter arrived in a kind of a cold, wet, wintry day in Glasgow, and I'm sitting here and so on. He's now retired, he's losing his sight. He thanked me for writing to him and so on and so forth. But he said, I'll be honest and I will tell you that I'm really wondering if my life has been a waste of time. I'm wondering if my life has been a waste of time. But that hurt me so much. Later the next summer, Harry and I were in Scotland for a month on holiday and we were in Glasgow. So I phoned him up and I, his wife answered the phone and I told her who I was and she kind of recognized me. And I said, I'd like to come and see him. Just spend an hour with him and thank him personally and respond to him again. And she said no. She said no. He's not seeing anybody. He's not coming out of the house. He's losing his sight. And he just sits here and he will not see anybody. I said, please, I was a student that I'm deeply indebted to him. I'd like just to come and see him one last time. She said, no. I won't let you do that. Later that year he passed away. And that, thinking about that even this morning, again, just leaves a streak of sadness in me. Because he was a man who really, um, who as we were singing a moment ago, really lit the fire in me with a passion for God's word. To study it thoughtfully and communicate it passionately to the life of the congregation. And that's where he was. So I thought about it this week and, and I will share with you, none of us wants to get to the end of our lives and say, now that was a waste of time. Life is far too important for that. And we don't get to go round again. I believe every one of us, whether we're young or older, wants to know that our lives will be fruitful and beneficial and productive. And that we've made a significant contribution to others, as this man did to me. We do not have to be wealthy or famous to achieve that. In fact, few of us will ever become wealthy or famous. 
but within the circle of our influence, we want to have made a contribution to the lives of others. So the question really is, how can we live a productive, fruitful kind of life? This morning, to say very simply to you, the essential factor is that we need to be connected to Jesus. As we'll see this morning as we work through some of these profound I am statements, we need to be connected to this Jesus who says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This is the secret of living a productive life. Follow me this morning in your Bibles or wherever you track the scripture. John chapter 15. Can you turn to that please? John chapter 15. One of the great um, passages that John writes about quoting from Jesus. John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. So that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither you will bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then again, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to, my, to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. And to finish off the thought, go down to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, that picture of divine branches was central to Israel. It really was their national emblem. It was the, appeared on the doors of the temple. And everyone who heard this passage would recognize it immediately. Because the idea appears in Jeremiah, in the Psalms, Hosea and Ezekiel. And the best picture is found, if you flip back with me, to Isaiah chapter 5. you do that? Go back to the 5th chapter of Isaiah. Just so you know that this is a passage that is rooted way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a winepress out of his well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did they yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, either pruned or cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Number 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed. For righteousness he heard cries of distress. He looked for justice, it says, but saw bloodshed. That's a, a Hebrew word. The, the Hebrew words are almost the same. We can't do that in English, but it's a play on these kinds of words. 
And it's saying very simply that Israel was God's great hope. But it became God's greatest disappointment. And God is saying to them, what more can I have done? That's the background of John 15. If you could sit down with John for a few minutes and say, John, I've read this chapter that you call chapter 15. And I've got some questions. Can I ask you some questions? John says, sure. What's your questions? And so here's where we're going to begin. What does a fruitful life look like? That's where we want to start. What does a fruitful life look like? And John says, Jesus calls us to be more than efficient. He calls us to be effective. He calls us in life to be more than successful. He calls us to be fruitful. Jesus calls us to be more than moral people. He draws us to be people whose lives reflect what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the moment you say that, I think many Christians particularly think that fruit means new Christians. Getting people to help us will come and accept Jesus. That's a nice idea. But can I suggest to you this morning that that's not the primary meaning of the word or the idea of fruit. Because in our, out of our relationship with Jesus, we're called to reflect what is called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians puts it this way. This is a verse that you should know. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience. Kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These are nine qualities that describe what's called, and note the word, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. Because it was the fruits of the Spirit, you could read over these nine things and say, well, there's two of them I really like. Maybe a third, and I'll leave all the rest. You can't do that. The, fruit, the word fruit, sing, singular, means that we have to pick the whole bunch. And go with that. Let me, let me just walk you through them just very quickly this morning. There's a lot in this morning, by the way, so you've got to kind of fasten your seatbelt. Um, so let me walk through these nine things and tell you what they are. Love. Love is neither shallow sentiment or cheap emotion. Spinous prescription comes to us in what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, kind. Does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Love does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it doesn't keep record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love always protects and always trusts and always hopes, always perseveres. And then Paul wraps up that thought and he says, and love never fails. Joy. Joy is the same root as the word grace comes out of the charis, out of the joy, out of the heart of God for us. We'll come back to that. Peace. The presence of peace is more than the absence of war and some kind of uneasy truce. It is the blessing of the Hebrew word is shalom. And shalom means a sense of peace that settles upon people. So people are at peace with each other in their heart, in their mind, in their souls. And then the fruit of the Spirit calls us to be men and women who are patient. And patience is um, really far too weak a word in English. And in the New Testament, there are two words for patience and used with great um, distinction. Each has a different quality. There's one New Testament Greek word for patience, which always means patience with difficult circumstances. Often translated perseverance or endurance. There's another word for patience, which always is used to mean patience with difficult people. And that's the word that's used here. And think for a moment in your own life. Those are two different 
qualities of patience. Sometimes we can be patient with difficult circumstances, but not difficult people. And patience here really means having a long temper. Not being sh- having a short fuse, but really having a long fuse. Now, I know myself really quite well. And I have a lot of patience with difficult circumstances. You give me a challenge, and I'm really willing to work away at that and try to work my way through it. And I will tell you just very honestly that I do not have a lot of patience with difficult people. Is that okay? I'm the kind of guy that if I was in a checkout at the Safeways or the supermarket somewhere, and you know you go to the express checkout because you've only got, you know, three things, bread, milk, and eggs. And it says very clearly, ten items or less. And I look at the person in front of me. And they got a basket full of stuff. There's 14, 15, 16 items. I have them deported. <laughs> Wherever they came from. Hong Kong, Yugoslavia, I don't really care. I'd have them deported. I did not have a lot of patience for that. I just told you that. Until they turn around and then they say to me, Hey, aren't you Tom Callan, the pastor? <laughs> God loves you and have a wonderful day. I do not have a lot of patience for that. I just, I'll tell you, I really don't. Kindness. You know, we can do a lot of things that are right on the outside. But they can be unkind and harsh on the inside, bureaucratic. Kindness is the quality of doing the right things with the right spirit. Goodness. That's a word that's only used four times in the New Testament. And it has the idea that an action is driven by moral value. In other words, it is right and it is goodness. We're seeking to produce and reflect the moral value of goodness in what we do. Faithfulness. It means that our word is accepted. Our lives are trustworthy. When we give a word, we really mean it. (coughs) Gentleness. That's often translated in other verses as the word meekness. Meekness. Our problem is that the word meekness sounds like weakness. Okay? That if we're gentle people or meek people, then it probably means that we're some kind of woods. And frankly, nothing could be further than the truth. The root picture of the word meek really means to train a horse. And it means that in a properly trained horse, all of its power and energy is under control and is being harnessed by the weight and the movement of the riders. So you see, the Spirit of God wants to harness the raw energy and the raw gift that is within us and wants to harness it to the glory of God. God wants our unharnessed energy in our lives to be trained and disciplined, as we'll see later, for His use. Gentleness and meekness is really power under control. It's the power and energy in our lives is not out of control, but rather is under control and is controlled by God. And people whose lives have talent and gift, but whose lives are unharnessed, are really often in a mess. God wants to use the best of our energy for Him. I thought um, a couple of weeks ago, as many of you I'm sure did, of the recent death of Whitney Houston and in some tragic circumstances. And you just have to think, what if that incredible voice and talent 
was more fully harnessed to the glory of God. Got to think that. Self-control. That's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And self-control is essential. Inner discipline is essential for our living with freedom. The less inner self-control we have, personally and corporately, the more we will need external discipline. Think of the recent Stanley Cup riots in Vancouver. It was driven by people who surrendered and who gave up self-control to liquor and to the crowd. But the greater self-control we have, which comes from within our heart, the more we will follow the law of the heart, and the less we will need external discipline. So this fruit of the Spirit describes the kind of person that God wants each one of us to be and become. That's why God's chosen us, says verse 16. You did not choose me, but I choose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit. And did you notice that none of the dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit are actions? They're all attitudes. And so it's not just what we do. It's really how we do things. A word of warning I shared with the leadership team a couple of weeks ago. Something we must recognize. It is possible, in fact it's quite easy, to reflect and produce each one of these attributes in a moral sense but without the power of the Spirit. It's possible to produce each one of these attitudes, but devoid of the light and power of the Spirit. In other words, we can look like this on the outside, but without the inner power of the Spirit working us. One very simple example. When we try to walk in love, when we try to do things in love, but we're lacking and we do not have the power of the Spirit in us at that moment. The result is not hate. You know what it is? It's duty. When we do things that we want to be loving, but we don't have the power of the Spirit working in us, the result is duty. And duty is when we do things with external motive, but lacking the inner power of the Spirit. Pause for a moment and think over your life this past week. How did you do? How did you do? Not just what did you do. How did you do? In some areas of your life did you bullet? Or did you just get a kind of a passing grade? So he asked John another question. You say to John, how do we produce and get this kind of fruitful, worthwhile life? Well, that's another thing. Jesus does not ask us to go where he has not gone. Jesus never asked us to do what he did not do. He always leads the way. And from this passage and others, I think you see with me that the life of Jesus revolves in his relationship with the Father around two centers. Two things. The first one is love. He's saying to us, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And so remain in my love. And that's critical for us. The secret of the life of Jesus was that he walked in a loving relationship with his Father. The source of his life and ministry lay in the deep truth that he walked in step with the Father's love. The love of the Father was his life and strength. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, he knew that deeply. He knew that passionately. So he says, so I love you. And that's the model that he gives for each one of us about how to walk with him and with each other. The 